Welcome to the Popey Podcast You Didn't Know You Needed, where we talk history through Pope-colored glasses and some of the craziest, most popular stories you've never heard of. It's a real joy for us to welcome you all here. I would like to invite each of you to listen. Do not be afraid. P.A. Domine, Dona e this is a popular popular podcast. Do not be afraid. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Popular History, a library of Catholic knowledge and insights. And I'm going to be skipping the brought to you daily part because I've switched, at least for the time being, back to a model that basically can best be described as brought to you as I am able. Something every month, probably. Which, I admit, doesn't roll off the tongue quite so well, but it's the right move. Anyways, it's good to be back talking with you again. I've been using the time away wisely, taking care of family and household stuff that needed my attention. Thank you for understanding. This is going to be something of a glossary of various roles within the Catholic Church that are going to keep popping up, so consider this your cheat sheet to consult as needed. Oh, and Good news, I learned how to timestamp show notes, at least on some catchers, so see if it works for you. Let me know if it doesn't. See the show notes. Without further ado, let's get into these church roles, starting with the church roles you may recognize from the Bible, but which are no longer a thing unless you're like a Mormon or something. First, apostle. The most familiar use of this term is referring to one of the twelve apostles, Jesus' closest followers. Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the other James, Judas, not that Judas, Simon, and Judas, yes, that Judas. At least, that's the listing of the twelve as given in the book of Acts. My favorite reference point is this podcast talks about church history, and church history actually happens in Acts unlike the Gospels, where it's pre-Pentecost, so it's not really church history yet, per se. And really, that Judas, Judas Iscariot, is replaced by Matthias for most purposes when you're talking about the Apostles, because since Judas betrayed Jesus, he's a bit of an embarrassment to the group. Which, fair enough. In the end, Apostle is the only one of these titles where I'm going to name the main holders individually in this episode. Though, of course, through future episodes of the podcast, I'll name all the popes and cardinals I have documentation of any kind for, and we should also recognize that the term apostle is used outside the Twelve as well at various points, including, most prominently, St. Paul, and even the almost certainly female, Junia, in his letter to the Romans. The broader term for one of the earlier followers of Jesus is a disciple. And while this one does have some use in contemporary Catholicism, for example, my parish has a slogan of making disciples and disciple-makers, the title of disciple, as a specific identifier, is something you're going to encounter in the Bible, rather than in the day-to-day, -day, where it's more of a general goal as a follower of Jesus. Meanwhile, an evangelist is one who wrote one of the Gospels. Earlier, I committed to the Apostles being the only one of these titles where I'd name all twelve of the main holders, and I'm going to stick to that. 
yeah, it's that simple. Note that this is actually more restrictive than being one of the writers of Scripture in general. For instance, even though he wrote a good chunk of the New Testament, St. Paul doesn't get described as an evangelist. That isn't to say there isn't a bit of tradition of using this term somewhat analogously for anyone who spreads the message of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. For example, the decidedly non-Catholic phenomenon of televangelists get their name as a play on this word. Our last Bible Times church role is that of prophet. Simply put, a prophet is someone inspired by the Holy Spirit to deliver a message. John the Baptist being the most famous New Testament example, though especially if you look closely at the book of Acts, you can find other examples. There have been a number of folks who have made claims to be prophets in some form or another. Generally, the church has frowned on such pronouncements. Officially, all new public revelation closed with the death of John, the last apostle, around the year 100. However, the door to being a legitimate prophet is not completely closed, since private revelation is still possible. For example, the various Marian apparitions, like Lourdes and Fatima. What makes revelation considered private is not so much its actual privacy as its non-binding nature. All Catholics are obliged to accept public revelation, namely the Bible. No one is obliged to accept any private revelation, like Latter-day Prophets, though such individuals can gain the basic endorsement to the Church, which is what made Fatima, for example, so influential. That bit of gray area bringing a biblical role to the present is a good transition to the category of church roles we'll talk about next, namely, the basic roles in and structure of the Catholic Church today. As a periodic reminder, the default perspective and focus of this show is Catholic Christianity. I say that because there are plenty of Christian groups that follow models different than what I'll be describing here, though in broad terms, what we'll be talking about here is the dominant structure of Christianity, and has been for centuries, if not millennia. The fundamental concept to understand for this part, and really to understand much of Catholicism, is apostolic succession. Apostolic succession is the notion that the apostles were the first bishops and picked folks to succeed them in their ministry as bishops. I'm not here to convince you that that's what happened, but since this show runs with Pope-colored glasses, it's what we're rolling with. In this framework, not just anyone can have authority in the Catholic Church. Only those who have this apostolic succession. You can still get wrinkles like mystics that influence the bishops, but ultimately, whether a mystic has a lasting influence is going to depend on whether any bishops, that is, anyone who has apostolic succession, listens to her. And I say her because such mystics are typically female. And actually, I wasn't planning on covering mystics in this overview, but I guess I really should give them their own timestamp in the summary here, since I've gone off on a tangent. I talked about them earlier in the context of modern-day prophets. Basically, a mystic is someone who has some sort of special connection to Revelation, whether God or the Blessed Virgin Mary, or whoever. But anyways, back to bishops, because while stuff like mystics are fun, the majority of church admin is done in much more mundane fashion by the regular clergy, like the bishops. 
Catholic bishops are always male, because in Catholicism, ordination is what makes someone a bishop, and Catholic teaching holds that women cannot be ordained. Another particularity of ordination is that someone who is ordained can't get married, though put a pin in that, because it's going to get more complicated when we talk about priests, and especially deacons. Only bishops can carry out ordinations, and it involves physical touch, so they cannot be done remotely. To minimize concerns about who has apostolic succession, and who does not, for many years the standard has been that at least three bishops should participate in the ordination of a bishop, though this is not, strictly speaking, a requirement. With all of this apostolic succession and ordination business, the Catholic world is divided in two. The clergy, that is, those who are ordained, and the laity, that is, those who are not ordained. There's also sort of a third category, but shush, I'm keeping it simple, and don't worry, we'll get into that before we're done today. Lay, the shortened form of laity, can also be used as an adjective in church terminology. For instance, in the phrase lay Eucharistic ministers, or lay cardinals. In both cases, emphasizing that the individual being described is not as uh, ordained as one might expect. Meanwhile, clerge is not a word. Please don't try to make it a thing. Anyways, once ordained, bishops are typically assigned a specific geographic area called a diocese. Their main base of operations will tend to be in what's called a cathedral, that's generally in the most prominent city in that diocese, and the diocese is generally named after the city. For instance, my home diocese of Columbus is named after the city of Columbus in Ohio. In some ways, bishops are equals. For instance, all bishops can ordain successors. But in other ways, they aren't. For instance, Catholicism is somewhat famously centered around the Bishop of Rome, a.k.a. the Pope, who is prominent because the Diocese of Rome was where St. Peter, the foremost disciple, settled down. Never mind that by all accounts he also ran the church in Antioch for a while. Collectively, all the Catholic bishops in the world are called the College of Bishops. And according to the very handy and highly recommended gcatholic.org, there are well over 5,000 such Catholic bishops alive today. Of course, there are also a good number of bishops who aren't Catholic, meaning they aren't in communion with the Pope, especially the Eastern Orthodox. And forgive me if I explain being in communion as, like, the church version of being Facebook friends. It's obviously more solemn than that. But basically, yes, it's a mutual public acknowledgement that you're on good terms with someone else. Bishops who aren't in communion with Rome are still bishops, meaning they still have apostolic succession and can still create their own successors, which has led to a fair amount of drama historically. When I mentioned not all bishops are created equally, I wasn't just talking about the Pope. There are several different kinds of bishops to consider, so let's hit the highlights. In addition to a regular bishop who heads a diocese, there's a higher-level bishop called an archbishop who runs what's called an archdiocese, or you might see the term province. Technically, I believe a province is a combination of an archdiocese and any regular diocese that are under its jurisdiction, 
which are called suffragan dioceses in that context, while the archdiocese is called the metropolitan, which is also a shorthand way of referring to the archbishop in that arrangement. Or you might more fully call him the metropolitan archbishop. To return to my home diocese as an example, the metropolitan for the Diocese of Columbus is the Archbishop of Cincinnati. Not every archbishop is a metropolitan archbishop, because not every archdiocese has a suffragan diocese. You can also find cases where a person is personally made an archbishop, but is not put in charge of an archdiocese. Those cases are called pro hoc vice, which is basically Latin for for this occasion, meaning while the person is being made an archbishop, their diocese is not being made an archdiocese. There are weirder scenarios that pop up as well, but I'm trying to focus on the highlights to keep this manageable, and we'll point out the more unusual stuff when and if it pops up. In terms of territory, the next step above a province would typically be a region, which is generally just an administrative subdivision of a national bishop's conference. Columbus is in a region with all the dioceses, it's hard to pluralize that, in Ohio and Michigan, called Region 6. This particular lay of admin is completely unremarkable and has no special titles or roles associated with it. At the top of the national level, there's generally what's called a bishop's conference, an organization made up of the bishops and perhaps their equivalents across a given nation. Depending on the scale of things, you might also see bishops' conferences that cover multiple countries. Or, I think I've even seen some subnational bishops' conferences here and there. Just depends on what makes sense given the geopolitics and the nature of the Catholic community. Though there isn't a special churchy title for the leadership of a bishops' conference, they're just called president or whatever, I will tend to note when someone I'm going over holds a leadership post here, since it's at the national level. Getting back to church titles, rather than standard admin structure, it's worth noting that, in a nutshell, the older a diocese is, the more prestige and gravitas it has. Historically, the oldest diocese in a given country had special importance, and was something a bit above a regular archdiocese, called a primatial see, held by a primate. Uh, not the monkey, though, sure, joke away. Oh, and C, by the way, is just another word for a diocese. That's S-E-E. It's specifically referring to the bishop's seat, which is the same concept that makes the head church of a diocese called a cathedral, cathedra being a Latin word for chair. And yeah, it's a bit weird to have so much focus on what someone is sitting on, but keep in mind, thrones for kings kind of fill the same concept. It's basically the idea that it's the office that has its own importance that accumulates with each office holder. Some dioceses are dignified at an even higher level and are called patriarchates, with bishops of those dioceses being called patriarchs. Historically, the core group of patriarchs was Rome, Constantinople, Antioch, Alexandria, and Jerusalem. Others have been added through the years, notably Moscow in the East. Generally, patriarchates are more associated with Eastern Orthodoxy, since the highest-ranking churchmen there are the patriarchs, though the popes would also flaunt their papal powers over the church generally by setting up some new Western patriarchates as well, 
like Lisbon and Venice. I'll definitely be spending a lot of time talking about all the various patriarchates in the main narrative, so stay tuned. Recently, a new role has been developed, and of course I mean recently in church terms, so, you know, in living memory. And that's the role of what's termed a major archbishop, just half a hair down from a patriarch in dignity, and of course, overseeing a major archbishopric. Check out my episode on Sviatoslav Shevchuk for more information on that. Basically, the Vatican wanted to grant the Ukrainians higher honor, but could not fully commit to a new patriarchate because of pressure from Moscow. So the position was developed as a compromise. There are now a total of four major archbishops, all Eastern Catholics. To explain very briefly, now that I'm mentioning Eastern Catholics, the Catholic Church is actually made up of a total of 24 sui iuris, that is, self-governing, churches, called particular churches. The one you're probably most familiar with is the biggest, what's called the Latin Church. But the other 23 are equally important, at least in theory, even though in practice they often get sidelined or overlooked. A single city may have multiple bishops because of these different rites, and also because of non-Catholic bishops. For example, there are currently five people claiming the role of Patriarch of Antioch, three Catholic bishops from different sui iuris particular churches in union with Rome, and two Orthodox bishops not in union with Rome. None of these Patriarchs of Antioch are based in Antioch, modern Antakya. It's complicated. Collectively, members of these non-Latin sui iuris churches are called Eastern Catholics, and in most cases, these are the results of various splits and reunions throughout church history, resulting in a variety of local traditions maintained because, one, tradition is beautiful, and two, union with the Pope is more important than the Pope then making everyone do exactly the same thing. Though, there have certainly been pushes for that, and I hope that somewhat tongue-in-cheek brief overview isn't too insulting, but long story short, the variety resulting from these different traditions could easily double the length of this episode. But given the whole purpose of the show is to allow cardinal watchers to follow cardinal numbers without getting too lost, I'm going to let the Latin Rite examples I've given form the core, and I'll explain Eastern titles, such as calling most bishops eparchs and most dioceses eparchies, as they appear in individual episodes. Now, believe it or not, there's still a few more bishop-tier titles to go. First, a titular bishop is a bishop who has been assigned a non-functional diocese, which sounds like a bit of a raw deal, and to be clear, it is, but generally allows them to focus on other stuff they need to be doing, while officially giving them the status and dignity of being a bishop. There are also titular archbishops, and even titular patriarchs. Basically, the next few terms function as adjectives. Another modifier you might see before someone's bishop title is auxiliary. An auxiliary bishop is a bishop who assists in the administration of a see, typically an archdiocese or patriarchate, while being titular bishop of another see. This keeps one person as the overall pastor, but allows for easing the burden when there's a lot of bishoping to be done. There's another kind of bishop called a coadjutor. As the co-part might suggest, a coadjutor bishop acts alongside the regular bishop. Generally speaking, a coadjutorship is a short-term arrangement 
designed to ease the transition when the regular bishop retires, with the coadjutor having automatic succession. Unlike auxiliary bishops, coadjutor bishops are not typically given a separate titular see, reflecting this even closer association with the diocese. Normally, the goal is one bishop per diocese and one diocese per bishop. Coadjutorships are treated as an exception to that ideal for the sake of smooth transition. Another adjective you'll see applied to someone's title as bishop is emeritus, and this one I think is more familiar to folks. A bishop emeritus is the former bishop of a diocese. In modern practice, most bishops are required to submit their resignation to the pope once they turn 75. So that's the typical retirement age, but early retirements due to health reasons, or air quotes, health reasons, are not unheard of, and sometimes folks are left in their posts for a bit longer. When a diocese has no serving bishop, that period is called a sede vacante, or vacant seat. Most folks hear that in connection with the Pope, though the term can be used for all dioceses, not just Rome. If the vacancy is a longer one, you'll often see what's called an apostolic administrator appointed for the interim, someone to keep things running who may or may not already be a bishop of another diocese, often the metropolitan. Finally, there's a broader term that includes, but is not limited to bishops, that I've been studiously avoiding. An ordinary. Most often, the ordinary is a bishop, but there are some special jurisdictions outside the normal diocesan structure that are served by non-episcopal, aka non-bishop, ordinary. Such jurisdictions are called ordinariates. And yeah, don't let the wording fool you. Ordinariates headed by an ordinary are not you know, the ordinary arrangement. Those are for special circumstances. The most common type of ordinariate is a military ordinariate. Given the special needs of armed forces and the families serving in them, many nations have a specific ordinariate dedicated to military families. There is also something called a personal ordinariate, which in modern times is best understood as a bridge between Anglicanism and Catholicism something Anglican leaders aren't particularly thrilled about, but that didn't stop Pope Benedict XVI from setting up the structure a few years back. This is also as good a time as any to note that a chaplain is like the priest-level edition of an ordinary, in the sense that they're dedicated to a specific group of people that isn't a geographic thing, and also in the sense that it's often something you'll see in a military or other institutional context, and also in the sense that a chaplain might not actually be a priest, even though they carry out many similar functions, much like an ordinary may not actually be a bishop. Alright, next up, let's start looking at what's going on within a typical diocese, especially at Mass, that most Catholic of ceremonies. As you might have guessed, we're going to be talking a fair bit about priests today, so let's dive in there. Priests, like bishops, receive holy orders through ordination. They effectively function as a stand-in for the bishop, serving as his delegates in the local churches called parishes. They have apostolic succession only in a secondary sense. Their holy orders are valid because of their bishop's valid apostolic succession, and they cannot ordain successors themselves. Unless, of course, they happen to also be a bishop, which 
Yes, Mr. Offscreen Pedant, bishops are also priests, but I'm speaking specifically about priests who are not also bishops. All bishops are priests, and deacons to boot. Holy Orders is a three-part deal that stacks up like that. Of course, not all deacons are priests, and not all priests are bishops. It's a squares and rectangles kind of thing. The primary function of a priest is to administer sacraments, especially saying Mass and hearing confessions. I actually have my sacrament series done for the Solemn High Pod, so check out the three-part Popular History episode Ot.20 if you want to know more about Mass and the sacraments. If Ot.23 and, dare I hope, Ot.31 are done by the time you're listening to this, you can check out those as well for more on the Mass. Like bishops, priests are generally expected to practice clerical celibacy, especially in the Latin Church, but also in the East, in the sense that they cannot get married after ordination. So if they want to join the ranks of the married clergy, they better already have the married part done before they do the clergy part. A priest is the most essential person when it comes to Mass, because priests are the ones who either celebrate or say Mass, either of those verbs will work, by the way, and I'm not actually aware of a difference in the meaning. Anyways, this is brought home by the fact that priests can literally say Mass by themselves, with no one else present. And I don't want to go too far into theology in this org chart overview, but I really should note that ultimately, on a theological level, it's not so much the priests themselves saying Mass or hearing confessions, rather it's Christ acting through them. What about deacons? Well, first off, there are two kinds of deacons in current practice, transitional deacons and permanent deacons. The transitional diaconate is a step towards the priesthood, and typically lasts a year. It's the first rung of holy orders, the first ordination the future priest will receive. In the case of permanent deacons, rather than a stepping stone, the diaconate is its own vocation, with the recruiting focus being on men ages 35 to 55 or so, depending on the diocese. Even in the West, married permanent deacons are normal, though still with the same caveat that I mentioned for Eastern priests earlier. Once you're ordained, no more new marriages for you. Deacons have an assisting role at Mass and administrating other rites and sacraments, but historically, their main role has been more in the realm of what's called works of mercy, a.k.a. helping the poor, as that was the original idea behind setting up the diaconate, as outlined in the biblical Book of Acts. It was only in recent times, recent times in the scale of Catholicism, of course, meaning in, you know, living memory, it's a big timeline. Anyways, it was only in recent times that the permanent diaconate was revived after a millennium of suppression. Technically, to be sure, there were some deacons in the Middle Ages. Pope Gregory VII gained his reputation as Deacon Hildebrand. But outside of the papal court, where titles tend to carry on regardless, that transitional model I mentioned earlier. Before that decline, deacons were actually generally more impactful than priests, often serving as the bishop's right hand, especially in the form of archdeacons. This model is still largely present in the Eastern churches, as I understand it, especially if you recall that archdiacon role I mentioned in the context of the Thomas Christians I mentioned last month. Finally, I should note that there is strong historical evidence for a female diaconate in the early church. For example, in Romans 16, St. Paul refers to a certain Phoebe as a deaconess. 
And unlike in the historical argument over female priests and bishops, the Church accepts a form of female diaconate as a historical reality. However, it is argued that women deacons were not ordained, that their role was fundamentally different from that of male deacons. Whether to revive an unordained form of female diaconate is an active topic of discussion in Rome. Of course, we're well into the weeds now. Things have changed. But before we make our way back to the modern church, let's take a quick look at how holy orders worked prior to the Second Vatican Council of the 1960s. Before Vatican II, holy orders didn't start with the diaconate. The priesthood was actually the culmination of a seven-step process that began with what's called the minor orders. The lowest rung of this ladder was the porter, being basically the church doorman. After that, the lector, in charge of some of the Bible reading at Mass, and a role which largely survived the council, but was taken out of the context of a step on the path to priesthood, to the extent that even, shock of shocks, women can be lectors. Next up, was the ever-crowd-pleasing role of exorcist, one trained to cast out demons. And perhaps surprisingly, that's another role that's still with us, now taking the form of a special category of priests. As I understand it, to this day, each diocese has at least one exorcist, though their identities are typically kept secret because, you know, kooks who won't stop bugging them because, I mean, real-life exorcist. Cool. Finally, up at the top of the minor orders, there was the role of acolyte. Think altar server, but one of the more active ones, not just a candle holder. And yes, a role that was once higher than an exorcist is now generally occupied by a middle schooler. Right above the minor orders was the first rank that required ordination. No, not the deacon, the subdeacon. Like all the other minor orders suppressed in the West, this role has been preserved in the East. Take this how you will, but the East has tended to more scrupulously preserve tradition than the Latin Church. It probably helps that they have no one with sufficient authority to come close to mucking around with tradition. I honestly don't think we'll be talking about subdeacons much, but just know they're, well, right below a standard-issue deacon in the medieval pecking order, as you might have guessed, assisting at Mass in similar but different roles. This office went away in the West with the abolition of the minor orders in Vatican II. After the subdeacon, the medieval and early modern seven stages of holy orders culminated with the familiar roles of deacon, full-on deacon this time, and then priest. Note that bishop was not really considered a part of the progression in this model. Now, let's take a moment to chat through a couple other church roles largely or totally left to history while we're in the neighborhood. First, who could forget the fact that there's a whole Canterbury tale dedicated to the pardoner? This wasn't someone who specialized in hearing confessions and absolving sins, as you might expect, after that episode we did on the newly elevated Cardinal Dree, the elderly Argentinian capuchin with that focus. Instead, the focus of the pardoner was on selling indulgences, those get-out-of-purgatory-free cards that brought enough scandal to destroy the unity of Western Christendom. And yes, I'm kind of acting like you already know about the Protestant Reformation in the same episode where I explain at a basic level what a priest is. Anyways, speaking of Protestants, or quasi-Protestants, or whatever you want to call them, perhaps just Anglicans, speaking of Anglicans, in many ways, 
They're an even better time capsule for preserving some things lost to modern Catholicism than the East. Obviously, not in all stripes of Anglicanism, as that wide tent contains a lot of innovations, but, well, on the traditionalist Anglo-Catholic end of the spectrum, you can still find things like canons and prebends. Canons with one end, of course, the church kind. Though, of course, the martial Pope Julius II was fond of two-end canons as well. Anyways, even ruling out the military canons, I need to specify, as there are not one, not two, but three distinct meanings of a one-end canon in medieval Catholicism and actually in contemporary Catholicism as well, though the role of canon, by definition our focus in this episode on roles in the Catholic Church, the role is much less common than it once was. But first, the most common meaning of the term canon in contemporary Catholicism is in the context of canon law, because that's the term for the way the church governs itself, and specific sections of the overall governing document are called canons. Similarly, church councils, that is, gatherings of church leaders, also tend to produce canons, especially the great ecumenical, that is, universal, councils of old that we'll start discussing when we get to the 4th century. So, for example, someone might cite the first canon of the Council of Nicaea, where the church of old ruled on the pressing question of how being castrated would or would not impact one's ability to serve as a priest. There's also something called the canon of the mass, and really, the root word helps to understand the meaning of both this and the law-slash-council thing, because a canon, in Latin, is something like a fixed measuring stick. The fixed part of Mass is the section of prayers that are always the same, or at least that were always the same until our old friend Vatican II made other options available, again, as I understand it. Nowadays, the canon of the Mass, also called the Roman canon, is additionally referred to as Eucharistic Prayer I, implying the existence of Eucharistic Prayer II, which isn't just a theoretical thing, but a real-life, shorter form that liturgical traditionalists like myself tend to hate. There's also Eucharistic prayers 3 and 4, which are less egregious, but still, stick with Eucharistic prayer 1, aka the Roman canon, if you would be so kind. The third kind of canon is, at last, the roll, and interestingly, the etymology here is the same root as the others, giving the sense of something standardized or fixed in place. In this case, the standardization is because the canons of a cathedral or other significant church were a group of priests who had decided to live communally and establish their spiritual and physical lives around a set of rules. You know, standardizing them. Canonizing their lives, if you will. They were basically members of the religious order, though not one centrally governed. Oh, and I suppose I should also note that the term canonization fits into this overall picture in a similar way. It's called canonization because what canonization does is standardize the cult of a particular saint across the universal church. Oh, and stop saying cult like it's a bad thing. In this case, that's just the word used. It's not a wink and a nod to Kool-Aid. Also, a canon in the sense of a cathedral canon or other role in a religious order is different from a canonist or a canon lawyer which is one who studies and explains or practices church law, respectively. Clear as mud? Fair. Oh, and the prebend I mentioned. Well, 
That's basically just a fancier kind of cathedral canon. Let's move on, though. The last historical church role I want to talk about today is the king, or the emperor, you know, whoever the relevant feudal lord would be, because such secular leaders were nevertheless seen as having a critical role within the church, with the civil government and the church not then tending to have the separation we're used to these days. Really, nobility in general was a big deal for the church until the last century or so. Okay, so we've talked about the various forms of bishops and their territories, and about who you might see at Mass. What about those between? Well, one of the most important functions in church organization is training up the next generation of leadership, and that training of new priests tends to take place at special institutes called seminaries. You can basically think of seminaries as universities for future priests, and there's also a junior league of sorts for younger students that's basically a kind of boarding school called a minor seminary. Those who study at seminaries are called seminarians, and those who teach there are nowadays generally titled professors, having the same basic sense as in the secular world, but with Catholicism baked in. Kind of like this show versus a generic, non-popular podcast. The head of a seminary is generally called a rector, though I'm sure there's some variety in that. As you may know, depending on what's common in your neck of the woods, rector can also have the same basic sense in secular institutes of higher learning as well, which makes sense when you take a look at the root word there, basically, ruler. Etymology is our friend here, there, and everywhere. Outside of seminary education, there's also the topic of the general administrative structure of a given diocese. Obviously, the bishop is on top, and as you probably already guess, the priests of the diocese typically have admin roles in addition to saying mass. As an American Catholic, I'm mostly used to hearing the term pastor for a priest who's tasked with running a local church community called a parish, though I gather, canonically, the Anglican-sounding term vicar is more precise. You'll also hear the term parish priest used in the same sense. A single parish may have more than one priest assigned to it by the diocesan powers that be. A secondary priest is called a parochial vicar in the more official stuff, but associate pastor is the term you'll hear in common parlance, at least in American use. You might also see someone described as a curate, which in modern use designates a priest who assists the principal vicar or pastor or rector of whatever, but historically would refer to the pastor themselves. And yes, it's complicated. There are higher levels to consider as well, both administratively and in terms of honorary titles. For example, Monsignor is a special honorary title given to seasoned priests at the discretion of the Pope. It's not really a role, since it's purely a title and has no special function, but I figured I'd include it here. There are three levels within being titled a Monsignor. First, a Chaplain of His Holiness. Second, an Honorary Prelate. And finally, a Protonotary Apostolic. These sorts of honorifics are currently out of favor in Rome, given Pope Francis's strong preference for simple aesthetics and not seeking honor and titles. But he's pushing against a very long tradition of honors and titles in Roman culture, long enough that it goes back to the cursus honorum of ancient pagan Rome. 
and I expect with the back-and-forth way the papacy and the curia operate, we haven't seen the last of ecclesiastical honorifics. After a fat pope, the saying goes, a skinny pope. Oh, there's even a kind of honorific for church buildings that functions in kind of the same way as making a priest a monsignor, namely, the status of basilica, which is basically just a way for the powers that be to say, hey, check out this church. It's extra nifty. Of course, not all higher titles within a diocese are honorifics. There are functional roles as well. The overall day-to-day -day admin of the diocese is typically not run by the bishop personally, but by an office called the chancery, run by a chancellor, another term you may have heard in higher education, because there's historical overlap between higher education and the admin of the Catholic Church, or, you know, medieval courts in general. Vice-chancellors are also a thing, being second-in-command, behind the chancellor. If you want a little more insight into what a diocesan chancery does, my home diocese of Columbus has a write-up on their website that explains it better than I would, so allow me to just quote them. Quote, The chancery includes those offices and persons who directly assist the bishop in the pastoral and administrative governance of the Diocese of Columbus. The chancery, on behalf of the bishop, expedites canonical matters, collects and preserves diocesan and parish records, assists parishes and priests with civil matters, maintains files on priests and parishes, collects statistical information for the diocese, facilitates communications with other dioceses and with Vatican, provides information on the church, or directs inquirers to appropriate sources, facilitates pre-marriage dispensations and permissions and transmit to other dioceses pre-marriage files, and oversees diocesan offices. End quote. The rough papal equivalent to the diocesan chancery is the Roman Curia. In Rome, the church bureaucracy is sprawling. It's no secret that bureaucracies tend to grow over time when left unchecked, and historically, Rome was just about the last place to look for a check on bureaucracy. Even the ancient pre-Christian Romans exalted bureaucracy, with their skills as administrators being credited as a major unifying force for the empire. Of course, administrative skills and bureaucracy can almost be contradictory concepts. After all, getting things done requires moving beyond committee after committee. But ultimately, the purpose of the Curia is to spread the faith handed down from the apostles throughout the world. And with that emphasis on handing down, tradition is a huge part of things. When you combine an emphasis on tradition with a massive scale, there are well over a billion Catholics in the world today, and a global scope, well, the Curia is absolutely massive. And, despite repeated attempts at overhauling things, it's complicated as well. It would be deeply ironic, but not inaccurate, to call it Byzantine, a term for really, really complicated, drawn from another institution derived from ancient Rome, though the Byzantine Empire is no more, and the papacy is more globalized than ever. Pope Francis has been toying with the formula more than any other pope in recent history. Time will tell if the changes stick. One of the most apparent changes Pope Francis has made to the Curia, certainly in the context of our rundown of specific terms, is rebranding the various pontifical councils and congregations to dicasteries. The practical effect of this is minor, 
but it's helpful to recognize these terms as referring to high-level curial departments, often, but not always, headed by cardinals. Indeed, Pope Francis has structured things so there is no longer any official bar to dicasteries headed by, say, a woman, though that hasn't actually happened yet. In any event, the heads of dicasteries, or congregations, or pontifical councils, or whatever you want to call them, are called prefects, with the second-in-command being listed as secretaries, and then things like undersecretaries appearing further down the chain of command, but still fairly high in the overall curial org chart. The cardinals I mentioned there are a special role connected to the Diocese of Rome. As a group, they are called the College of Cardinals, in much the same way that the bishops throughout the world collectively make up the College of Bishops. Most famously, it is the eligible cardinals under the age of 80 who pick the next pope in a closed voting contest called a conclave during a papal sede vacante, or a period of vacant see, you know, empty chair. Meetings of cardinals, more broadly speaking, are called consistories, because, yeah, pretty much everything has a special term here. That's why you're listening to this episode. The office of cardinal has historical connections to the clergy of Rome, but it is not by definition an ordained role, meaning there could conceivably be women as cardinals in the future, as I discussed in my September 29th episode this year. There are three fundamental orders of cardinals, the names of which are rooted in the origins of the college, but which are no longer tied to their respective levels of holy orders in any particular way, as all modern cardinals are at least priests, and most are bishops. Nevertheless, cardinals are categorized as either cardinal bishops, the highest level, or cardinal priests, in the middle, or cardinal deacons, the lowest category, though really, if you're a cardinal, even at the lowest level, you're still pretty high up in the church's pecking order. Special roles within the College of Cardinals include the proto-priest and the proto-deacon, the longest serving of those respective orders. Historically, it was the proto-deacon's job to crown the Pope, though popes haven't opted for crowns in decades. It's also the job of the most senior cardinal deacon participating in the conclave to announce the new Pope through what's called the Habemus Papam, Latin for, we have a Pope, a specific name for a specific speech. Speaking of conclaves and papal sedevacantes and such, the Camerlingo of the Holy Roman Church is the one who runs the show when there's no Pope around, assisted, of course, by a vice Camerlingo. And to give you an idea of just how wonky the Curia can be, though the Camerlingo of the Holy Roman Church is generally a cardinal, he should not be confused with the Camerlingo of the College of Cardinals, a role dedicated to administering the financial affairs of the Cardinals, which has, mercifully, recently been allowed to lapse. So yeah, there are a huge number of special roles and titles connected to the Curia. We'll be seeing them in action repeatedly as we go, but I don't want to get too hung up on them in this overview. Needless to say, Rome is a special case, Full of special cases. Before we go, I do want to point out the nuncios are effectively papal ambassadors, and the offices they head are called nunciatures. A small step down the ladder of diplomatic precedence, there are pronuncios who have pronunciatures 
and who perhaps aspire to be full-on nuncios one day. Yes, oddly, in this case the pro-prefix actually signifies someone as a lower rank. Finally, it would be just plain wrong of me to skip the fact that there is an important role called the Librarian of the Holy Roman Church, which is pretty much exactly what it sounds like, and which was historically also known as the Bibliothecarius. Don't worry, we'll be following them especially closely. Anyways, any more standard dioceses, including Columbus, may not have something as deep and extensive as the Curia, but they still have their own complexities, not only within, but also beyond the walls of the chancery, often being subdivided into units called deaneries, which are groups of parishes. These multi-parish groups are headed, as you might have guessed, by someone called a dean, though you might have also guessed that a more official and less intuitive name exists in canon law. A deanery can also be listed as a Farain vicariat, headed by a vicar Farain. There are other roles that aren't geographically based, but are still critical to the functioning of the diocese, such as notaries, who are permitted to draw up official documents on behalf of the local church, and consultors, who, well, are there for the bishop to consult with on specific topics where he may need their advice. Okay, we're getting there. Now, you might think you know what religious means, but in a Catholic context, it has a narrower definition. Being a-religious means you have taken religious vows, specifically the evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Obedience, in this sense, meaning obedience to a religious superior. Welcome to the world of religious orders, which you might also know variously as religious institutes, institutes of consecrated life, societies of apostolic life, or even congregations, depending on a variety of factors and generally distinguished at a deeper level than I want to get into today. A fair amount of the variety comes from the various religious orders having their own distinct rules called, well, rules, and particular focuses called charisms. They also traditionally have distinct uniforms called habits. You could typically recognize members of different religious orders by their habits. For example, white and black robes will most often be a Dominican. Brown or sometimes gray will tend to signify a Franciscan of some sort, though there are a lot more religious orders than there are basic colors, so brown is also the dominant color in the unrelated Carmelite order. Anyways, the most classic form of religious order is a monastery, with the members of the order being known as monks, in the case of males, or nuns, in the case of females. And monasteries have always been segregated by gender, though there were historically sometimes what was called double monasteries with male and female wings. Given everyone involved had taken a vow of chastity, such a separation was seen as a practical step. Now, you might be surprised to hear me mentioning nuns in the context of a monastery, rather than a convent, a similar institution, which, in contemporary English, is where you'd expect to find nuns, with monasteries being reserved for monks. But I want to give you some historical understanding as well, and historically, the distinction between a convent and a monastery was not one of gender, but of specific type. Monasteries tended to be more rural, 
and therefore removed from worldly concerns, but could be communities of either gender, while convents tended to be more urban, and therefore a bit more integrated into secular society. But that historical sense has faded sufficiently in English that you'll get weird looks if you say there are nuns in a monastery or monks in a convent. You may be technically correct, which is indeed the best kind of correct, but just be aware that the non-gendered sense of the terms is now not as common as it once was. Either way, members of religious communities are generally called brother or sister as the default form of address unless another title supersedes. The head of a monastery is typically called an abbot in the case of a male congregation, or an abbess in the case of a female congregation, the congregation being the community itself. Second in command in the case of a larger community, or perhaps an overall command of a smaller community that is itself subordinated to a mother house, is a prior, or prioress, the former for a male community and the latter for a female community. In terms of the overall building, if the person in charge is an abbot or abbess, then it's an abbey. If it's run by a prior or prioress, it's called a priory, though it's not unusual for folks to simply fall back on the simplified and gendered newer meanings of monastery and convent I described earlier. A generic term for those in charge of a religious community is a superior, or perhaps mother superior, with the leadership of the overall global order being typically called a superior general. There's also a middle range of governance called a province, giving that word a similar meaning to what we saw on the diocesan side of things. All of these communities vary in a number of ways. Some are more removed from worldly affairs, with few to no outside visitors. Those communities are called cloistered. These communities go back to the origins of Christian monasticism, where an individual would often feel inspired to withdraw from the world and live a life of severe asceticism, that is, renouncing pleasure and embracing prayer and penance, reparations for sins, in the hope of spiritual rewards. In the common narrative, folks would come out to such hermits, who might be called desert fathers or desert mothers, and seek to follow their example, forming a community. The term for the individual ascetic who vows to follow the evangelical councils is a hermit, like I mentioned, or you might also call them an anchorite, and that form of monasticism is eremitic, from the same root word as hermit. Once you're talking about living in community, that particular form of monasticism is called cenobitic monasticism, combining the Greek words for common and life. Not all monasticism is that degree of renunciation of the world though certainly that form was most established in the early church. But over time, other orders with various special charisms, special focuses, emerged, with the rise of the mendicant orders, those that essentially lived by begging, occurring in the 13th century, with the Franciscans and the Dominicans being classic examples. Male mendicants are called friars. In time, there would also be missionary orders, such as the Jesuits or the Salesians, as you might guess, those being dedicated to spreading Christianity to areas where Christianity was a minority. Members of missionary orders are simply called brothers or sisters, leaving the monk and nun labels to those living in more traditional communities. In a number of cases, the communally living religious orders 
have established affiliated entities designed to allow those who live outside their actual communal life to nevertheless observe some form of their rule and wear some form of their habit. These are called third orders, the first and second orders being, by implication, the monks and the nuns in their communities. Members of third orders are called tertiaries. Historically similar to third orders were things like beguines and their male equivalents, beggards, though those were as much defined by their lack of official status in the church as anything else, which makes them an awkward addition to this episode. So I'll leave it at that. Anyways, with the permission of their superior, keep in mind obedience is one of the monastic vows, the others being poverty and chastity if you need a refresher, anyway, with the permission of their superior, male religious are able to receive ordination and become clergy. Religious who become priests are called religious priests, which is fair enough as a title, but does have an amusing effect in that priests who are not members of a religious order are called secular priests, a term that made me laugh when I first saw it, and which still makes me chuckle from time to time. They can also be called diocesan priests, but what's the fun in that? Believe it or not, this overview has left a lot out. Like, I never told you about how Catholicos was originally a title for a bishop whose territory was more devoted to a region than a specific city, but that it evolved to be the highest title in the Church of the East. But that's in part because, while I intend to cover all 23 sui juris, that is, self-governing, churches that make up the overall Catholic Church, nevertheless, the Roman or Latin Church is the dominant stream of Catholic history, making up over 98% of Catholics today. In case I haven't made it clear enough yet, let me emphasize again that this stuff does get complicated, and you don't need to feel bad about not knowing it all offhand. I've thought about this stuff for hours daily, and I don't meet that bar. This episode required research like every other. But I hope this guide helps bring some clarity and can serve as a useful reference as you go. If I didn't explain it here, and possibly even if I did, I promise I'll explain it when it comes up as we go. Thank you for listening. God bless you all.